because within traditional architecture, the final space of a building is the result of the functional and monetary limits. Functional meaning functional requirements like how many floors do we need to have, what amount of square footage does a room need, and obviously the monetary limits speaks to the budget of the project. Work Association is a show about the intersections between technology, design, and the experience of being a human. It's a word association game Miles and I invented to learn about things outside of our little creative bubble so we can expand the way we think about the work we do every day as brand storytellers and experience designers. Each week, Miles and I switch off roles. One of us chooses a word for the other to research in the context of design, technology, or branding. Then we meet back up and talk about what we found. At the end of the episode, the researcher picks another word that they associate to the story they told, and we switch off and do it all over again. Welcome back to Work Association. This week, we're looking at the word that Nick gave me, which is attraction. It was such a fun one to get into. I wanted to try and get away from the general definition of the word, which is the action or power of evoking interest, pleasure, or liking for someone or something. So there's obvious connections that we can make with this word, especially within my area of expertise, design. But for the sake of expanding our horizons, I went off to try and find a more interesting and surprising take on this word. So during one of my YouTube rabbit hole explorations, I came across a video of this person sitting in a really bizarre looking room talking about architecture, design, and all these things that I love in life. He sounded like an interior designer, but the room he was sitting in looked like this crazy sci-fi workshop. So right off the bat, I had to dig deeper. I mean, I found out that I was watching a video excerpt of a class on how to become an Imagineer. Now, I know this word from when I was young, but Nick, do you know what an Imagineer is? Uh, if I'm... The, the only, the only um, uh, experience or exposure to that word I have is like a, I, th I thought it was a term that the people at Disney made up. It's like those who basically create animatronics for like theme park rides. But I'm now I'm not really sure if that, that if that's right. <laughs> You're 100% right. Okay. Imagineers are Disney's theme park designers. And that's why I'm so excited to talk about this. This week's work association will explore the word attraction as in theme park attraction. Oh, <laughs> we'll be exploring theme park attraction design and how their process can influence our work in digital experience design. <laughs> but before we dive into this, we'll need to take a step back and talk about who and what Imagineers are. Okay. Like we said earlier, these are people that work for Disney's theme parks and the public's perception of them seems to be the same as uh, animatronic designers, you know, like the Chuck E. Cheese band, that type of stuff, like mascots. Well, the video I stumbled upon, it blew my mind because apparently they're just so much more than that. This video is a course on how to be an Imagineer. I'm not even sure when this video was produced, but it's a full course from theory to workflows. So I did what I imagine. 
uh, any person who stumbles upon this series would do. I spent an entire Saturday binge watching slash <laughs> taking this class. And at this point, I'm fairly certain I can get a certification to be a real Imagineer. <laughs> All right. Imagineers is a combination of words, imagination and engineering. It's also the definition, using imagination and engineering to design and create theme parks. At the end of the day, Imagineers are experienced designers in a fundamental sense, but more traditionally, they're architects, graphic designers, lawyers, and really anyone who works to try to tell a story through a physical experience. Yeah. At this point, I'm already seeing a ton of similarities between Imagineers and what we do when we're creating digital experiences or developing brand identities and really even creating products. But what really drew me to Imagineers is that they're also driven creatively by constraints in the same way that we are. It's after all design, right? And Imagineers are designers. They have to deal with building codes. They have to deal with gravity balance, function, and aesthetic problems like where do you put a bathroom in the middle of a jungle experience in Animal Kingdom without disrupting the experience? (laughs) Stuff like that. So there's three things regarding attraction design that we'll be going over today. First, theme, then environmental storytelling, and lastly, development. And even that, right? It already sounds like I'm talking about building websites, So it's really crazy how similar Imagineers are to us. Yeah. All right. This is all like a total curveball, but was this something that you thought we would get into when uh, you chose the word? I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I know I haven't really been talking much and I got to say the, the thing that's coming to my mind is that I'm kind of speechless. This is amazing. I never would have expected that this episode would go in this direction i kind of forgot that theme park rides are called attractions (laughs) um but man like you know it's funny when i was a kid i think i must have been i don't know not much older than 10 or 12 years old Uh, i used to really love watching the disney channel and and i remember i don't know if it was a tv show or if it was a movie or something like that but it was kind of like a documentary on imagineers and what they do it's i remember being like i think i want to be an imagineer when i grow up like it's the coolest job literally other than like being an animator for pixar i i I guess i've never really talked about this before but like i actually think as much as i've you know I, i don't necessarily think that uh that you know disney is uh is is like you know, I, I know there's a lot of people that like have this sort of cult sort of appreciation of Disney and the theme parks and they're kind of like bought into everything and all the merchandise and stuff. I'm not necessarily like that, but I do think that the people who produce the content uh, at at Disney, at least from what I've seen in these types of like, you know, uh, behind the scenes footage and, and all that kind of stuff, I think they have like some of the coolest jobs ever. And um, so, you know, to, to to find out that that's the direction that this episode's going in, I'm just like so pumped and I just can't wait. <laughs> yeah, super excited. There's definitely a sense of nostalgia when thinking about Imagineers and really Disney in general. 
And it's funny you brought up that that documentary because I also remember watching that. And when I stumbled upon this video course, I was kind of like discovering uh, a forgotten dream. Like, oh, crap, I was supposed to be this when I grew up and forgot. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know if you've ever been to a Disney theme park, but I remember how immersive and detailed it was to the point that you kind of forget where you are and you're just transported to a totally different world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I haven't ever been to uh, any of the Disney theme parks. Um, but, uh, you know, when um, the Star Wars theme park opened, uh, which I know is like a, it's not really like a, like a classic Disney thing, right? But like, obviously, being one of the more sort of like one of the newer um theme parks of, of of the disney sort of you know landscape i suppose uh and and me being like a huge star wars nerd i like did a little bit of reading up and and watching some videos on um you know what the what the star wars uh attractions are like and it, i remember it was not too long ago I, I watched a video it was kind of like a um a recording of what this one experience was like it's not even like a, a ride you know you, you you typically think of theme parks as having um you know like roller coaster rides and stuff like that and i think like one of the things that's really interesting about you know disney theme parks is or 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 disney yeah just disney theme parks is that um not everything is like a roller coaster ride a lot of times these attractions and maybe that's why they use the word attractions is um it's not really a ride it's just an experience that you have and this one that stood out to me in particular is I forget the name of it, but you basically go in and you can make your own lightsaber and they use all these crazy techniques. So like there's this whole thing about you get to choose what like the sort of like handle looks like. You get to choose what like the end pieces look like. And then you get this little crystal called a Kyber crystal and you can put it inside of the, um, of the handle of the lightsaber. And then like, you know, you turn the lightsaber on for the first time and it actually lights up and stuff. And, and the way that they do it, you know, with people's uh, you know, the, the, the people who work there wearing like really like crazy realistic costumes and the set design and everything. It's, it's, I, I watched that video and thought to myself, if I was a kid, I don't know if I'd be able to distinguish reality from like, fiction in in a place like this you know it's just so incredibly magical and it made me think at the time kind of similar to what you're saying like just all of the time and planning and technologies that had to be invented for this kind of stuff to to even happen you know it's like they have to they have to like think of all of that and and when things literally don't exist they have to be the ones to innovate and to to make those things in order to like make this experience come to life. Um and yeah, I guess like in that moment, you know, I'm I I I am drawing parallels in my mind to like somebody who is an experienced designer on the web is essentially the modern day like you know, public facing imagineer. Right, totally. The first thing I wanted to talk about is something you just brought up, which is the idea of theme. Because there is a difference between theme park and amusement park. 
oftentimes people kind of use them interchangeably, but an amusement park is all about giving you the physical sensation and excitement through like roller coasters and other types of rides. That's not really what we're focusing on today. We're focusing on uh, on theme parks. So what exactly is a theme, right? Like a theme is what the story is about. It's the deeper meaning behind a story. Yeah. You mentioned Star Wars. So Star Wars actually has multiple stories and all sorts of events taking place within the world and throughout the movies. In one movie, you might be following storylines. The universe is huge. There's all sorts of stuff happening. But at the end of the day, Star Wars is about the power of hope. That is the theme. That's what drives all the storylines and characters you encounter in the right. movies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how does this relate to Imagineers? Well, Imagineers use the theme as their true north. They make all of their decisions based on the theme. Right. And mind you, at any given time, Imagineers are faced with an impossible amount of decisions when creating attractions. So, like, how many decisions are we talking about here? Well, let's take Animal Kingdom as an example. In one of the videos, uh, an Imagineer named Joe Rode talks about the scope for building an attraction. When talking about Animal Kingdom, he stated that the theme of Animal Kingdom is the intrinsic value of nature. Wow. (laughs) That's the theme. And that's what Imagineers reference for every single decision that they make. He talked about the simple act of designing a door within Animal Kingdom. He said, picture a door and there are hundreds of doors in Animal Kingdom. What should this door look like? Should we use wood or steel? Well, intrinsic value of nature, obviously wood. Right. Should it be smooth or rough? It should be rough. Should the doorknob be shiny or rusty? Again, the intrinsic value of nature, that's the theme, then it should be rusty. Even the patterns on the doorknob itself, even if it's as small as, let's say, your thumbnail, you know, they ask themselves, should this be geometric or organic? It's a simple uh, kind of solution would be organic. You begin to realize how easy or, well, let's say straightforward it is to make decisions when you have a clear understanding of the theme. And hearing all of this reminds me a lot of how we approach brand identity design because when we're creating a brand we know that we'll have to make thousands of decisions and not only that but the brand is a living thing meaning it kind of evolves over time it's not static right we're able to produce cohesive identities because we rely heavily on brand personas mission statements etc and what i love about the idea of a theme is that it simplifies an extremely complicated and oftentimes intangible thing into a bite-sized piece of information that can drive countless decisions and guarantee that the essence of the brand is really preserved. Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, when we're working on developing a communication strategy in collaboration with a client, realistically, It's all based around, you know, a couple of kind of guiding principles or core values or, you know, aspects of a brand voice or whatever. And once you set out all of those guideposts of 
what's within the bounds of the brand identity and what's without the bounds of the brand identity. What, you know, sort of path do you want to take with your messaging to tell a particular story to a particular audience? It does make it a lot easier to then make those types of decisions. What's interesting, though, is I've never really considered it from the perspective of one singular theme. Usually it's kind of a collection of colors that make up a palette. But I think at the end of the day, what I haven't really thought about is, uh, well, all those colors in that palette, they're all paint. So that's kind of the theme, right? So like, what's, what, what's the, what's the core theme, uh, that we, that we set up for, for our, uh, uh, the identities that we create and the, the stories that we tell. And, um, and I think that that's, that's a really, really, really cool way uh, to look at it, especially with something as like expansive as uh, building an entire theme park or, you know, e even on a smaller scale, a singular attraction, you know, that there are so many individual decisions that need to be made when something is in the physical space. Uh, and, and to think of every single question, every single decision from one centralized point of perspective uh, is, is fascinating. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. You know, there's another really fascinating aspect to being an Imagineer. So we know that they rely on the theme to make decisions and create immersive worlds, but the actual framework they have to design within is a nonlinear one. They refer to this as environmental storytelling. This is intrinsically different than traditional forms of storytelling like movies, books, etc. because environmental storytelling is a non-linear experience. Right. There's no camera or director telling you where to look. You become the director, you become the main point of view and the story unravels in the order in which you explore the space. So it's definitely challenging to design a narrative driven experience knowing that your story might be told in a non-linear way. It's interesting because it's the same challenge we face as digital designers, right? Our users at any given point, they can decide to click around and wander aimlessly through our experience. They can essentially get lost. In the same way that Imagineers approach this problem, we create signs or in digital terms, navigational elements and call to actions. We use intentional browsing methods to provide an intuitive way for people to traverse the site. The inspiring thing about Imagineers is that the way that they're able to hide these utilitarian things so that the experience and immersion aren't disrupted. There's a lot to learn in environmental design in that way. I mean, although it seems much more expansive than user experience design for websites and apps, the fundamentals are the same because, you know, people navigate in the same way when they're exploring spaces digitally or in the real world. Aside from being nonlinear, it's also a multi-sensory experience, right? You can hear, touch, smell, and even taste the world that you're in. I mean, you are in that space. What seems like daunting challenges and limitations are actually opportunities for Imagineers. Uh, let's take the sense of smell as an example. If you're walking through an old French street market, similar to what you might see in Beauty and the Beast, well, 
Imagineers are able to design actual food carts with fresh bread or other types of food you might expect to encounter and smell when you're walking down this market. And as you walk through the space, you're not only immersed visually, right, but you can smell the market. So these are really the things that add up to making an extremely immersive experience. We know that Imagineers are also able to navigate all of these challenges, but the fact is, amidst all of this, they still at the end of the day have to entertain and tell compelling stories. And we can talk about what makes a story compelling, but it comes back to the idea of the seven elements of a story, something you might have learned in English or literature class back in the day. You have the exposition, the inciting incident, the rising action, the climax, falling action, and finally the, uh, the resolution. Imagineers are able to embed these things within their environments. So let's take Carsland for example. One Imagineer talked about how entering the Carsland attraction has a very similar effect as the beginning of a movie. You literally enter this world and there's a ton of like stuff going on and you're being introduced and discovering all sorts of stuff. So this is the exposition. The inciting incident element takes place as you go further in and you realize that there's a race that's about to take place. So you continue walking, you find the main attraction in Cars Land and realize that you can actually participate in this race. So this is the rising action element of a story. The excitement builds up from here, and you're not just there to watch a race, but you can actually be in it. Then you launch off, the speed and turns happening, all of that results in the climax. So are you in an actual car? You're saying that you walk, you walk around this town, you interact with different people or like different cast members or whatever. You get these little bits of information. And then you somehow find out that you are in a race and you have to get in a car. Is it like a go-kart kind of thing? Yeah. So you get on this car that's on a track and okay. it takes you through the land. It literally looks like you're driving through the desert or something like that. Okay. Then you enter a cave that basically transitions the environment into a dark nighttime scene. And here you meet a bunch of the characters in the movie. At one point, a cop even talks to your car and... All along, you're just taken along for this ride. It's pretty insane. You even go in and out of buildings throughout the experience. It's it's really uh, it's it's really fascinating. And at some point, you actually find out that you're raising other guests, right? So Imagineers can even introduce plot twists with environmental storytelling. So after the race, you find yourself at Radiator Springs, where you can continue on to explore the environment and finally have an opportunity to have a meal at the same diner featured in the movie. It's all there. So just by entering this attraction and moving through the space, by the time you come out of the other side, you essentially go through an entire storyline. The difference with this experience and, say, a movie is that you have control over what to look at, interact with, and discover. Yeah, what's really interesting about this is, um, you know, you mentioned a little bit ago uh, this concept of intentional browsing, um, and it's uh, you know something that we kind of use internally 
um, to talk about setting up an experience on a website that allows a user to browse at their own pace and in their own way, but is uh, crafted in a way that um, sort of gently guides them towards specific interaction points that are um, centered around business goals, you know, whether that's selling a product or getting someone to sign up for an email address or whatever, you're not creating a an experience where that feels forced because if it feels forced then the user's not going to want to do it but rather you're offering them the ability to browse with intention towards a particular goal that they might have for themselves um or if not you know uh something that uh they you know will eventually kind of make this decision that you know to, to take that action um which at the end of the day like it can't be something that's forced, right? It like no matter what, you 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 physically cannot force a user to take an action that you want them to take. They're either going to take it or they're not. It's kind of like you know that that saying you lead a horse, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. And with the user experience design, you know there is one hundred percent like on the web, no way to uh, to force a user to uh, to to take that drink. They have to make the decision on their own, and it has to feel like something that they will find gratifying in some way or another. Otherwise, it's just not going to happen. Um, and, and what I think is really interesting in terms of a parallel with this kind of approach of designing an attraction is that, you know, there is sort of this underlying story, which, you know, has a beginning, middle and an end, but it's experienced in a way where, you know, the, the the visitor kind of needs to stumble upon that story in you know their own sort of uh in their own way on their own timeline you know and um and it, no matter what out of the thousands or hundreds of thousands of people that experience that story you know all of those plot points are the same the text is the same in terms of like you know the the, the lines that are spoken by the actors or whatever it might be the things that happen you know, the, the mechanical things that happen with any sort of like technology that's involved. All of those things are choreographed to happen exactly the same way, but the way that it's actually experienced by those individual visitors is going to be completely unique to them, not just the one time that they visit it, but if they visit it on multiple returns, you know, maybe they're in a different part of the park at a different day when something's happening and, you know, Maybe they choose not to do the race one day and they can just like see it from the sidelines or whatever. It's kind of pretty similar, you know, when it comes to an experience on the web, you kind of have these, especially with something like a website that's informational or something where there's an interactive web experience that's all about telling a story. You know, there's like a million different ways that someone can enter that story. And then, you know, maybe they pick it up at the very beginning by going to the homepage, but you know, they searched from Google and ended up in some sort of like super deep internal page. And, uh, you know, that's going to be different pretty much every single time. And that's fascinating. You know, I think that's another really impressive thing about Imagineers. They're able to create these highly immersive worlds that gives you the feeling of discovery. Right. If they want you to feel lost or give you the sense that you're wandering through an environment they're able to do that in a way that you're actually not lost. You kind of just feel lost. 
not only that, it's a positive feeling, not a I'm lost and terrified feeling. <laughs> so they're really designing mazes that feel complicated to solve, but in reality, all the paths you take will eventually take you to the end. Right. So while there's dead ends here and there, it's just enough to give you that feeling, but not so much so that you're actually lost. So designing this is really a balance, and it's a, it's a really impressive feat. Yeah, I think it also kind of highlights the necessity for attention to detail because, I mean, if you're thinking of it from the perspective of these Imagineers, they're they're thinking about, you know, someone being immersed in this experience for potentially hours, potentially a whole day, potentially multiple days. And they're going to be walking around. They're going to be experiencing things, uh, looking at things. And they, you know, as you mentioned, like they're kind of thinking about every sense, you know, the, the smells and the sounds and whatever. But that also then means that they have to do just, I can't even imagine the number of hours of testing and decision making when it comes to everything from the smell, like they have to, they have to purchase the right kind of screws to go in the doors. So that way the, you know, you're talking, let, not, not even thinking about the door itself. Like, obviously you have to design that, but like, okay, well now let's make sure that like, even the screws don't look, you know, kind of fake. Cause I, I mean, speaking from experience as a kid, having gone to, you know, theme parks or, or, or uh, amusement parks, you know, they try to set up these experiences, but the second there's something that's not working right, or, you know, maybe, uh, maybe the, the, the ride is a little old and it's starting to lose its paint or something's peeling off the wall or whatever. It's like those minor imperfections completely ruin the suspension of disbelief, you know? And if you're trying to set up this experience where, uh, you know, everything is just, you're, you're actually in the environment that you're, that you're pretending to be, or, you know, whatever it is, if you're, you know, you're actually on a planet in Star Wars, or you're actually on Navi, or you're actually in Africa, um, you know, on a safari or whatever it is, all of those things, like you, you have to think about every possible aspect of the experience. And I think, you know, that's a good thing to think about when you're talking about experience design for the web. And this idea of allowing someone to sort of um, navigate aimlessly um, you know, maybe, yeah, maybe they kind of go down a rabbit hole and they get lost or whatever, but when they get that deep into it, it should still feel as, um, cohesive with the story and the brand and, you know, whatever else you want to think about, uh, when it comes to the rest of the website, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of websites will put a ton of emphasis on like a homepage and then every internal page looks like it's using the exact same template and uh it's not considering you know calls to action and ways to help users navigate from page to page and things and those those kind of areas of um sort of the really deep parts of the experience that you maybe don't put as much emphasis on uh if if they don't have the same level of attention to detail uh you know you might be sort of maybe maybe you're not going for a suspension of disbelief but you're you're breaking you know the uh the continuity of the experience in a way that could potentially be detrimental um to 
to the ultimate goal of, of the website, whether that's informational or pushing a sale or whatever it is, you know? Um, yeah, super, super interesting to think about, like, you know, choosing the right screws, like, you know what I mean? That, that kind of concept of like having it go all the way down to the tiny, tiniest little detail, you know, putting that level of emphasis, um, into, into something that's, you know, a digital product design. So that leads us to the last point that I looked at, which is the development of things. So how do you actually make this? The aesthetic aspect of it makes sense. Sure, don't build a glass door, but a wooden door in Animal Kingdom. But now, how do you make sure that this door is functional? Yeah. There are building codes and safety requirements that any building or place needs to follow. So to start, we need to talk about the difference between traditional architecture and the type of architecture that Imagineers practice. Because within traditional architecture, the final space of a building is the result of the functional and monetary limits. Functional meaning functional requirements like how many floors do we need to have, what amount of square footage does a room need, and obviously the monetary limits speaks to the budget of the project. So these are two main factors that dictate the final design and shape of the building. For Imagineers, they start in a more direct way because they have a reference that they need to replicate as accurately as possible. These are references that, you know, moviegoers might be emotionally attached to because it's attached to a plot and characters, you know, go and traverse uh, these spaces. So when you're recreating it, it better be pretty accurate. So, for example, let's say you're tasked as an Imagineer to build a hotel or for guests to stay in, right? So, your reference is a pivotal scene in a movie. And in this scene, a character enters a hotel and a key plot point takes place in the lobby and only in the lobby. So, you're really only shown in the movie just, you know, the outside of the hotel, entering it, and then walking around in the lobby. And, and, and that's all that the audience ever saw. So if you were tasked to build a hotel with only these scene, this scene as your reference point, then you have to actually fill in a lot of gaps, right? Because going back to our reference, we only have access to the front of the building, the lobby, and that's it. So we don't know what the rooms look like or the elevators, the bathrooms, etc. On top of that, maybe this was an animated movie and the hotel was actually floating in the sky. Now you have to recreate something that that's not even possible, but you know, uh, it's it's literally just fantasy. Imagineers actually thrive at this. They're so good at their job that they even influence the movies themselves. In Cars Land, the Imagineers recreated the diner depicted in the movie, and for the sequel, the animators actually included this extension. Uh, in, in the final movie. So architects and Imagineers share the same result of a fully functional building, but the main difference is that Imagineers begin the process with a clear reference that they then need to expand upon, while architects, on the other hand, start with budget and functional requirements, like we were saying, and from there, they concept out the final look of the building. Right, but you're still constrained by the same types of constraints that a normal architect would be 
I would assume, right? It still has to be built in a way that isn't just, you, you basically have to take something that's like imaginary and make it work in the real world, both functionally, aesthetically, and I guess in many cases, legally as well. <laughs> so take the floating mountains in Pandoraland as an example. This attraction was inspired by the scene in the movie when they were riding these flying creatures all around the floating mountains. Okay, now, as an Imagineer, you have to create something that literally cannot exist in our physical world, yeah. right? Yeah. Luckily, Imagineers have techniques that they use to trick our minds. The most popular one that you know many people are probably familiar with is the technique of forced perspective. When you need to give the illusion that something is much larger than it actually is, you build it in a way that the higher elements are actually scaled down or the relative scale shifts depending on the height. They also manipulate vantage points and rely on textures to further change our perception when, uh, when we're looking at the structure. Textures like foliage, when placed all the way up at the top of the mountain, it starts to look like uh, forested areas because it's so far away. So by no means is this attraction small. The floating mountains are about 15 stories tall, around like 156 feet. This is all the Imagineers needed to make them feel like they're the size of real mountains. Uh, aside from the height, the feeling of weight was also considered for the illusion to work. Imagineers used a mixture of textures and colors to make the face of the mountain look like real granite or some kind of rock you would typically see. So they look heavy. In reality, they're hollow with a steel superstructure on the inside. Yeah. I'm like looking at pictures of the Avatar theme park. And I can't imagine where this big steel box would go. It literally looks, so for reference, anybody that hasn't seen Avatar in the movie on this fictional planet, there's these sort of big boulder looking rocks that float in the sky. Um, and I don't know how, but somehow these Imagineers made that. Like, there, it literally looks like there's these floating rocks, like the size of, like big enough to fit like, you know, I don't know, 30 people on top, maybe. It's it's insane. And you would never really know it. So now there's height and weight to trick our brains into thinking we're looking at a mountain, but now it has to float after all of that. So for that, Imagineers hid the support beams inside these large vines that look like they're hanging down from the mountain. And Really, there's two things at play here. One, we typically perceive vines as draping objects and typically are not weight-bearing. The amount of vines hanging from the cliffs creates a mesh of random assortment of uh, greenery that gives the sense that this mountain is floating and all of these vines are just hanging off of it and falling, when in reality, the opposite is actually happening. The vines are actually the support structure, so it's the thing that's holding the structure up. Now, in the natural world, that would never be the case, right? So our brains wouldn't even have entertained the possibility that these vines are the ones that's holding everything up. 
because they just look so limp and uh you know as you would see them in nature it's almost like seeing a balloon break through glass in the real world balloons are filled with air and they're light and fragile compared to glass but if this balloon was actually constructed from metal or stone then it can easily break glass so Reconstructing objects to fit the functional requirements of a structure is what allows Imagineers to preserve the aesthetic and narrative of an otherwise impossible structure. Now, it is worth noting that the actual design of the support structures were done by engineers from Walter P. Moore and not in-house Imagineers, but like we've been discussing, an Imagineer seems to be a person who uses creativity to convey the theme so in a way at least i believe that anyone for that matter could be called an imagineer the takeaway for me with this is that you don't always have to build things exactly as they are in order to really push the limits and make your imagination come to life you have to almost tap into illusions and tricks if you want to take it to that next level Floating mountains are not possible, right? It came from someone's imagination. But if you want to build that, you need to play tricks on people's minds to make it come to life. I see that now in digital design. Take websites, for example. We have incredible limitations when we design because of screen size, bandwidth, or file, like file size, and accessibility. So these are all the forces that act upon a design process and it's really what drives the possible. If we want to push these limits, then we have to look to Imagineers and how they would go about solving these things. I picture a website that requires a large moving background of stars and galaxy, as an example. As the background plays out, text flies past you, and the stars are flickering, all the stuff is happening, Right away, you can imagine how heavy this video background asset will be. If the reference dictated this to be full screen, then you now have concerns regarding responsive design, you know, differences between users' browser sizes and load times. Before, we would have just said, you know, this asset is not really possible to implement without major hits to the UX because it's going to be slow and it's not going to look right depending on the screen sizes. Now, Using the Imagineer's approach, we can look deeper and see how we can quote-unquote fake this, right? And how we can implement this same theme without actually placing one large asset. With the Imagineer's way, we can break it up, code the dots of the stars, animate the text using JavaScript maybe, um, you know, faking a lot of things and, and using tileable textures, stuff like that. I mean, this is a dumb example, but it shows that thinking like an Imagineer can allow you to build impossible things. And uh, that's my work association with the word attraction. Hopefully, now we can bring a lot of these concepts over to our world of digital experience design and get inspired by these magical people known as Imagineers. Well, that was... A delightfully unexpected turn and I feel like I got a little bit smarter that was cool that was really cool 
And at the same time, I think that um, it's sort of made me look at what we do with a little bit more wonder too. Um, because, you know, I mean, on one hand, you can kind of think about learning about this type of stuff. It's like, it's like learning how a magician does their tricks, really, at the end of the day, you know, uh, a magician, you know, I, I don't think that real magicians have any qualms with talking about how, um, you know, what, what they do is an illusion. And that illusion is, uh, is, you know, sort of predicated by technology, you know, at the end of the day, magicians are really technologists, they're using things like magnets and force perspective and all those other things to make something that seems impossible look possible. Um, and that's a lot of like what Imagineers do and they do it with, you know, again, like technology, but maybe on a different scale. Um, and, you know, once you, you, you can have the perspective that once you kind of like peel back the curtain and you see how something actually happens, it kind of removes or reduces the wonder and the magic behind it. Um, but I feel like to be the person that is the architect of, or the creator of that type of experience, um, you know, maybe for you, it kind of ruins the, uh, it ruins the wonder, um, to know how it's done or, or whatever, but to be the one to, to actually be able to create those things and then put them in front of others and have those others experience the wonder, uh, that's kind of like what reinvigorates you and makes you feel like, wow, this is like so exciting and cool and unique and new. And, and, uh, it's something that you love to do every day. Uh, and I think like kind of talking about it from this perspective, like, you know, it's not that I ever lost that feeling, but it, it heightens that sense, you know, that like the types of things that, you know, we produce are experienced by others and in many cases makes them feel this sense of immersion into a story and it heightens their emotions either positively or negatively, you know, um, in terms of like, maybe we're telling a story about climate change or, you know, uh, hunger or, you know, public health crises. And in those cases, like we're intentionally trying to evoke negative emotions and things. Um, but either way, you know, we're using this, design and technology and and this platform of the web to uh to make someone feel something and and that's that's pretty cool to think about you know <laughs> well it's definitely a bittersweet feeling knowing that you're privy to the secrets and how the illusion is made i think for me at least the exciting part is the fact that we're essentially solving puzzles yeah on one hand, our users are entertained or informed in a really great way, and that's what they're feeling. And on the other side, our side, we're taking pleasure knowing that we've solved something really interesting. Uh, we're solving these problems, and now we get to watch other people enjoy the work, right? Yeah. This research really opened my eyes into how deep you can actually go with creative thinking. You can float mountains, literally. <laughs> yeah, man. Fascinating stuff. A lot more fun than I expected. <laughs> All right. So what did you think we were going to discuss with this word? Seems like it definitely was not attraction design, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I kind of assumed that uh, it would be in relation to um, either like, you know, 
developing some sort of way to attract uh, a user or a customer to a particular message through visual design, you know, something that was uh, related to like, for example, call to action buttons or something like making something stand out in a way that uh, that pushes people, you know, or, or helps people gravitate towards a particular interaction uh, within an experience. I also kind of thought that, you know, maybe if you went in a different direction, you might think about, um, you know, the uh, the UX of dating apps or something like that. Like, you know, the the idea of attraction between like two people and how technology facilitates that or something like that. I really didn't expect uh, to go in, in the direction of theme parks. But but yeah, something something having to do with, um, you know, sort of like the magnetism present within um, user experiences or something along those lines. Oh man. Yeah. That's funny you say that because I actually did look into attraction as in people being attracted to each other. But yeah, like I mentioned in the beginning, I wanted to push it and try to learn about something totally new. So, you know, when I stumbled upon this course, uh, on YouTube, I knew I just had to dive in. <laughs> All right. So here's your word for the next episode. If you're ready. Yeah. All right. The word is ubiquitous. Ubiquitous. Okay. Wow. Yeah. All right. I guess like as a starting point, the let's let's look up the definition for the word ubiquitous. Uh I know what this word means, but I just want to get like the Merriam Webster <laughs> definition of it. Yeah. So for me, it, I, I think of, you know, ubiquitous as being like something that's everywhere. Um, and so that the actual definition of ubiquitous is uh, existing or being everywhere at the same time, constantly encountered or widespread. Uh, so, yeah, pretty much the same as as what I was just saying. But OK, so now I got to go do some research on how the word ubiquitous relates to design, technology, and uh, storytelling in the digital world. So uh, I guess on the next episode, you'll be hearing from me on the word ubiquitous. Thanks for listening to Work Association. If you like this episode, please subscribe, tell a friend, and give us a rating or review. This show was produced by Max Bangora and hosted by Miles Rojas and Nick Dank. Work Association is brought to you by Suits and Sandals, a brand communications and creative agency that helps companies tell better stories and create better digital experiences. To learn more about Suits and Sandals, go to suits-sandals.com. That's S-U-I-T-S hyphen S-A-N-D-A-L-S dot com.